Our broken political system is a bad deal for America. And we'll talk about it on this episode of the Mind Dog TV podcast. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the host or guest and should not be interpreted as statement of fact. Independent fact checking and corrections are encouraged. This episode is brought to you by Fundwise Capital. Fundwise Capital is a business lender matching platform. Avoid the mystery of one-sided deals. Connect with Fundwise to get the very best funding you can qualify for fast. You can apply online in 60 seconds or less, and there's no effect to your credit to see how much you can get. It's easy. Use the funding for anything you need to start or grow your business. You did hear me correctly. I did say start or grow your business. If you don't have a business yet, but you got a solid business plan, they can help you get funding. Get the best funding you can qualify for. Their strategic lender matching platform searches through hundreds of lenders to find the very best possible option for your unique situation. They have hundreds of five-star reviews on Google, Trustpilot, and Facebook, and an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau. They provide unsecured lines of credit at 0% interest for 9 to 15 months. Unsecured term loans, loans based on income, short-term gap funding, and bridge loans. They work with real estate, startups like I already mentioned, franchises, restaurants, any kind of business, any kind of project. To get started, it's really easy. Just go to apply.funwise.com slash minddog. That's apply.funwise.com slash minddog. Get money for your business now. Apply.funwise.com slash minddog. Welcome, my friends, to yet another episode of the Mind Dog TV podcast. I'm Matt Napo. Thanks for coming. It's great to have you here. As always, we're going to talk about politics tonight and more than just politics, uh, how our political system is broken and whether or not there really is anything that we can do really practically uh, to, to fix it, to address the problem of um, money and corruption and um you know, conflicts of interest within our political system. Uh, I'm a pessimist, a big-time pessimist. I, I, I have a feeling my uh, guest ha- might be a bit of an optimist or at least a hopeful optimist on the subject, or else he wouldn't have written a book about it or a couple of books about it. Uh, Dr. David D. Shine is an author, professor, consultant, and public speaker. He's a tenured professor at, and director of uh, graduate programs and the endowed chair of management and marketing at the University of St. Thomas Cameron School of Business. He is also the president and general counsel of Claremont Management Group, a human resources consult- uh, consulting firm uh, out of Houston, Texas. Ladies and gentlemen, please open your ears, open your minds, and help me welcome in Dr. David D. Shine to the Mind Dog TV podcast. Dr. Shine, welcome. Thank you so much for that kind introduction, and I'm, I'm looking forward to chatting with you. And yes, I am an optimist. How can you be? <laughs> That's well, the- you know, we have lived through a great deal. Uh, you know, the American empire pretty much started with the end of World War II, at least, you know, from my reference point. And uh, we've made it through World War One, World War Two, the Cold War. And um, it seems that we kind of hit the skids around Vietnam, even though we had a brief uptick with the uh, Desert Storm. And then uh, we hit 
and it's, it just doesn't seem to be you know hitting on all cylinders but Americans are an amazingly resilient batch and we've we've come back from from some pretty tough circumstances so I, I have confidence that we can uh, fix the current situation but it is going to take some doing. I hope you're right, but uh, again, I am a pessimist. Now, your latest book is called ba- uh, Bad Deal for America. I want to show the book uh, here if I can be covered. Now, uh, this, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, basically uh, focuses on our legislative body for, for the most part, co- uh, congressmen yeah. and senators. Uh, but there is a whole other level, uh, a couple of other branches uh, and state level and all this stuff where money is uh, the biggest uh, factor in how decisions are made. And there's a lot of people getting fat off of government jobs, supposedly being public service. Why uh, did you choose to only focus on the legislative branch? Well, I'm, I'm working through things. My first book, Decline of America, 100 Years of Leadership Failures, uh, focuses on the presidency only. And then this book, uh, kind of logical progression, focuses on the U.S. Congress. In fact, people have asked me if there's a certain couple people that aren't mentioned in this book, and that is because they've never served in the U.S. House or the Senate. And so, uh, for instance, Donald Trump wasn't eligible to be in this book. Uh, Joe Biden was because he was in the Senate. And so it's a it's a fair game evaluation. And uh, but it, it's a. Uh, I do argue by analogy at near the end of the book that we need to apply the same rationale to our local people. So it, it's uh, there's so much out there that uh, I could write 40 books, I guess, but uh, we have to do them one at a time. Right. Now, uh, a lot of this, uh, the information in this book, and I haven't read the whole book, I, you know, uh, okay. I'm looking I'm looking through uh, synopsis and, and, and looking through it. But a lot of this, uh, it, it starts out with explaining where some of the fat is. And I think people will be surprised because a lot of people understand that like a congressman or uh, a salary will be $174,000 a year. That's yeah. that's understandable. But there's a lot of perks, bonuses, tricks, tips, uh, and things that uh, people are probably unaware that you ex- you start by explaining where extra money can come from. Uh, maybe you can enlighten the people a little bit, and you don't have to you know spell out the entire book and where you're going with that. But some of the uh, some of those kind of uh, things that people take advantage of to fatten in their own pockets and wallets, uh, aside from this salary. Well. Um... First of all, one of the things I do as a professor, and, and this helped me in, in writing my books, is, is I, in, later in life, I went back to school to get a PhD. And a PhD focuses on research and research at a high level and also writing at a higher level. And so it was interesting for me because you would think that given that this all comes from the public, that you and I would be able to just go on Google and say, hey, show me how much a congressman or a senator makes, and it would pop up and it would list everything that we show in the book. Um, I can tell you that it took about six months of research. Now, we didn't continuously work on that, but I had a couple researchers, very sharp people working on that. And and of course, uh, 
I'm a kind of a stickler. I only use things in my books that I have actually read myself, but I have people out there who will go locate sources. Then I read the source and all that. But we found even one of the sources of, of income or, or benefits that's mentioned in the book uh, toward the end of that chapter that we found within maybe 60 days of releasing the book for publication. That's how hard it is to get in there and actually see something that should be incredibly transparent. But uh, yeah, that uh, 174 to 190,000 a year that they get up front is just the tip of the iceberg. Right. And so we're talking about a couple of things that things they can use for write-offs and but but also like campaign funds. So uh, yeah. when we when we see somebody who's making one hundred and seventy four thousand dollars as a salary and they're driving a two hundred thousand dollar automobile, a lot of that money can, is coming from campaign money that was meant for their campaign, using it for personal funds uh, and using some kind of loophole saying, well, it, it it's uh, got necessarily uh, security features that are or, or something like that. Well, inventing reasons to spend campaign funds. Am I correct? Well, and this is, there's been very little prosecution of people for misuse of campaign funds. There's a couple recently, and it kind of intrigues me a little bit because it seems that uh, the people that are actually prosecuted, the, the majority tend to be Republicans. And of course, the administrative system in Washington is overwhelmingly controlled by Democrats. I'm not saying that those particular Republicans didn't deserve to get kicked in the butt, that I'm, I'm very equal opportunity on this. I'm just saying I would like it to be across the board. And, you know, part of the justification is that, uh, and by the way, I lived in Washington, D.C. Uh, area. I lived uh, just over the bridge in Alexandria for three years. And it's one of the inspirations for the book because I got a chance uh, to actually for both books, I got a chance to really be the fly on the wall. Um, I was invited to a lot of events. I, I went out with lobbyists uh, who were uh, courting the particular politician I was close to. It's very interesting time period, but it's very, very expensive to live in Washington, D.C., which is why I live in Houston, Texas today. Um, I enjoyed living in Washington, by the way. It's exciting and a lot of interesting people and stuff but it is uh, prohibitively expensive. So the, one of these things these cats will tell you, well, we deserve all of these benefits because the salary isn't that great and we have to have a house in Washington and we have to have a house in our district. And my argument in the book is consistent. It is these cats need to be in their district talking to the people that they represent for real. I mean, to really have a conversation, not just like, Hey, hi, how are you, Ted Cruz? But let me sit down with you for 15 or 20 minutes and really explain what's happening in Washington. Um, to give you an idea, I sent Ted Cruz an email about two months ago, uh, right after a deputy sheriff here in Harris County, Texas, which is Harris County is the big county that surrounds the city of Houston. And a deputy sheriff came out to his car. He was buying things for his sister's birthday party. He was there with his wife. As he walks out to his pickup truck, there's three guys ripping off his catalytic converter. And there was a shootout. He, he winged two of the three. All three were arrested, but he died. 
Uh, oh my God. Yeah, horrible thing. And, uh, and I have uh, one of the professors at the university had his catalytic converter stolen from the parking lot in front of his building at a Catholic university. Now, the point is, I wrote to, to Ted Cruz two months ago and I said, look, we can make this go away quickly. Let's make it a federal crime to steal a catalytic converter and to buy a catalytic converter because these cats wouldn't be stealing the darn things if they couldn't sell them to somebody because of the valuable uh, uh, rare minerals, rare, rare earth minerals that are used in the uh, catalytic converter. And I'm still waiting for an answer. You know, you get an automatic reply that says, hey, we got it. I got that and uh, not heard anything further. And the point is, is that uh, I'm, you know, I'm sure they've got a lot of stuff going on, but they also have staffs. And of course, all of those staffers are paid out of federal funds and uh, have generous salaries and generous benefits. So uh, I'd like to see a little bit more responsiveness. And I think if they, if they have to stay in their district most of the time, we just proved going through COVID that we can do meetings on G whiz. We could do meetings <laughs> on StreamYard, which we're doing today. Right. I do lots of meetings on Zoom. These cats don't need to live in Washington, D.C. In fact, my proposal is if they need to have some face-to-face -face meetings periodically, that uh, they we build a dormitory or buy a couple old abandoned apartment complexes and build a dormitory and say, hey, Ted Cruz or uh, you know, uh, Senator Kennedy from Louisiana, when you're in, in Washington, D.C. periodically, here's your dorm room. <laughs> I would love that. And just say, you know, you got a bathroom down the hall. And the rest of the time, we want you to live in your district. Uh, we'll cover your airfare back and forth, but we're going to put a limit on that. And I mean, some of the silly stuff, like each new uh, congressman and senator gets an office budget. Now, how sophisticated is it to put desks and file cabinets in your office? I, yeah. I don't think people need to, you know, put new furniture in their office. And remember, every single penny we're talking about comes out of our horrible federal economy, which has hit the $30 trillion deficit level. And uh, that's, that's just the tip of the iceberg. As I explain in my book, Decline of America, the real national debt is about a hundred trillion dollars because the 30 trillion is just the money that the Fed has borrowed. The rest of that money are unfunded federal pensions, unfunded parts of Social Security and Medicare and ex extensive pensions for public employees that have not been funded. So it's uh, it's not a good scene. And I think a little economy would go a long way. Yeah, no doubt about it. But you, you, uh, you touched on so many things there. First of all, I got to start with uh, just a little bit of a clarification. There, you said uh, make it a federal law for anybody <laughs> to buy a catalytic converter. You mean a hot one off the off the black market, as opposed to uh, buying one from a dealership, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Wanna... <laughs> yeah, and okay. the are out of them right now. The professor right. had his catalytic converter stolen off the. Uh, off the campus, his vehicle sitting in the campus parking lot, uh, told me uh, how I heard the story from him. He said, I'm driving a rental car because once the catalytic converter is out, your automobile cannot, your vehicle cannot be driven. 
And because it's in between the muffler and the uh, motor, it's not after the muffler. So he said that his uh, auto insurance only covered 30 days and the Chevy dealer had not yet gotten the uh, catalytic, a new catalytic converter in to install in his uh, uh, vehicle. So he's a little worried he's gonna have to start covering the car rental himself. And it was interesting because earlier today, I saw a pickup truck uh, race by my office here in historic Houston Heights. And it sounded like a, uh, like we we're at a, a streetcar race. And I said to uh, my uh, office manager, you know what? I bet he had his catalytic converter stolen and he's just driving it because what happens again is the muffler's disconnected if the catalytic converter is missing. And I just realized that all of a sudden lately, I'm hearing a lot of very loud vehicles and yeah, I am too. I didn't realize that that might be the cause of it. I, I, don't, I don't even think about these things, but that that's just a small point. I just wanted to clarify that because when people people heard you say, wait, you mean we can't buy catalytic converters anymore? Like the, uh, right. That's not the issue. Uh, now, don't need one for a new, you know, for a new vehicle. Right, catalytic right. converters last a long time. <laughs> yeah. So uh, you talk about perks and this idea of, uh, man, I, I love the idea of them living in a dormitory and the idea of public service. You shouldn't get rich, you know, you shouldn't be uh, intending to get rich off of public service. Public service is meant to be serving the public, not serving yourself and getting rich. Somebody asked a question yesterday uh, and it, it was on the morning show, which is not a really serious show anyway. It's a, a light show, but we were talking about politics and why we uh, it's impossible to get good people in office is because it's all you know anybody who has any scruple and you know this runs well, counter to your op optimism but i feel like anybody who has any scruples doesn't want the job because all of the all of the kind of nonsense you, you have to learn to be a good liar you have to learn to, to you know work the system and for good people i think that feels so seedy that nobody is so we're not really getting quality people running so when it comes down to the two-party system we're having people who are the coming into it with bad motives how can i enrich myself how can i get more personal power for myself rather than people who are really looking for public service people who've already created a successful life for, for themselves a they are have a comfortable living and have created a foundation for their families. And now they're just looking to give back and serve the public. We're not getting those because of that whole system that we set up and the two parties uh, kind of put us in a, uh, a situation of, of choosing between the lesser of two evils all the time. Your response to that. I, I, I agree with that. And in fact, one of my several projections is that I think the two party system which clearly is failing America today, is at the end of its rope. And I expect that we're going to start seeing a serious splintering of political parties. I could see a far left Democrat operation, the Communist Party, uh, a moderate Democratic Party, a, uh, a kind of the, the, the non-Trump Republican Party and then the Trump Republican Party and maybe a, a, a true conservative operation or constitutional, I think we might also see with the huge growth in the Hispanic community, 
a Hispanic political party and an African-American political party. So we may end up in the future with a coalition government like they have in most countries in the world other than the United States. So I think it's a, it's a pretty interesting deal. So there's no reason that we are stuck with the two-party system other than the fact that the cats in Washington control the game and we've got to break that game somehow. And part of it is to bring these people home and to also get some term limits in there so we can have some turnover. And, you know, when you when you hear that the the congressman and, and none of this is meant to be bad or mean to any particular individual, but the congressman from Alaska passed away the other day. And I think he was 85 years old and he was getting ready. He's already getting ready to run for his 25th term in Congress. And it's like, you know, God love him. I'm, I'm sure he's a wonderful person, but it's it was time for him to go home 20 out of those 50 years ago. I mean, I have yeah. somebody five terms, but there's no way that after being in Washington for 50 years, he was still connected to his, his country, you know, to his, his state and his district. Right. There's so much here that there's no way we can really even get to even half of this stuff or quarter of this stuff within the, the time that we have. But you're, you're absolutely right. Term limits, I think here's, it, there is an argument of, for, against term limits. And I'm just curious if you buy it at all. Right. It's that that um, it takes a while to really learn uh the workings of congress or the workings of the senators so by the time you actually get your committee assignments and, and become a competent it seems like the training program is more than it would be in corporate america or even at your local deli or wherever your training program is you generally today you're being trained for one day and you start on the job it seems like the training they or, or the on-job training for legislators they want it to be the first four terms and then after everything after that they be they're competent and when you finally get to competency you don't want to have to start all over again that's the argument do you buy I into any of that Yes, I, I understand that. And again, I did spend some time in, in person in Washington. And here's the here's the deal. The system is complicated in order to keep the, the current folks in power. It's not a complicated system. Uh, most of us corporations run and if they've got a, a, a president is not getting the job done. I remember a very famous case uh, 15 or so years ago where they hired a new president for Home Depot. Nine months later, they said, hey, you know what, buddy, you're not getting the job done. You're out of here. And so I don't think that an individual congressman's job is more complicated than being president in a Home Depot is the short answer. And so what happens is, is that they've come up with this concocted system with seniority. And to me, we've got to get rid of both seniority and we've got to implement term limits. And because the two kind of interface with each other. And the answer is, the person in, who should be in charge of the Judicial Committee ought to be one of the best lawyers that we've sent to Washington. The person in charge of the Defense Committee, again, not the Secretary of Defense, but the Defense Committee, ought to be somebody who served in the military, uh, maybe somebody like a Dan Crenshaw, who's one of the new congressmen from uh, Texas. And people actually know how the military operates and not saying, well, we're going to put this doofus in charge of the, uh, this committee, uh, 
because he's been in Washington longer than the rest of these people. It, it's a self-feeding situation. So I think we, we've got to break up the seniority. We've got to simplify Washington. And, and I think that's, that's quite possible. I don't think it's something that's impossible. I think it's going to be very difficult to pull it off. And believe me, I'm, I'm not Pollyanna. I, yeah, it's no. going to be a haul. Right. So um, part of it, we, we've been talking about <clears throat> taxpayer money that is being abused as far as uh, luxury lifestyles and all this kind of stuff that is, is going into congressmen and, and senators' um, excuse for spending money and, and, and doing their job. I need a house in Washington and all that kind of stuff. But there is also the other part of the money, which is corporate influence and people buying um, – Buying politicians straight up, I mean, putting them in their pocket. And I think corporations are pretty smart gamblers. They 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 know how to hedge their bets. So I'm going to buy a Democrat and I'm going to buy a Republican just in case. Uh, and is there any is there any of that in this book and any proposal on how to deal with that? Yeah, the 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 structure of the book is the early part of the book is this extensive research we did on the the money available to people who serve in Congress and the Senate. Then the middle of the book are direct quotes from 26 Republicans and 26 Democrats. And then we have a joker, of course, because a deck of cards has a joker. And then I talk about some of the people who have great wealth. Now, I do want to point out that we did talk about Mitt Romney. Far as I can tell, Mitt Romney had the money before he became a senator. But part of and uh, I and the reports are that he may have a little less today than he had before, but he's, you know, he's been out of his uh, corporate existence for a long time. In contrast, you've got uh, Joe Biden, who has never had a real job, who has supposedly never been paid. I mean, back when he first went in 47 years ago, I, I think the pay was uh, 35 or 40,000 a year. I didn't research the, the track record, but it wasn't an enormous sum of money. But it's, it's interesting how millions and millions and millions of dollars have floated through the, uh, the Biden family without any visible source of income other than payola. So that's certainly one of the more vivid examples. Uh, Chuck Grassley on the Republican side has been mentioned as somebody who's made out on government largesse. And again, we present both sides of that story because he does have an argument. We found it in the press. We included it. Uh, that uh, he has a farm, and even though he's not running the farm, that the farm was entitled to federal subsidies. And, you know, I, I'm not arguing about that. I'm just saying I'd like the people to see that situation. Uh, Nancy Pelosi is in a situation, her husband is very, uh, very wealthy, but we've also tracked the fact that they've made some extraordinarily interesting business deals. Yeah in the greater San Francisco area that tie in directly. Also, I understand that a number of especially Democrat uh, politicians have magically bought stock very early in uh, electric car companies and uh, companies that are going to make electric cars and then uh, obviously are you know way ahead of the game today over the civilian on the street. And of course, you know, there's been some serious bipartisan discussion about something that seems fairly simple, that while you're in Congress, you can't play in the stock market. And the, the dilemma is the Nancy Pelosi dilemma, which is 
if we say we can't, we don't want, uh, you know, ancient Nancy, who I don't think she knows what day it is this, this year, uh, <laughs> you go to her, but you, you've got to control the husband. And of course, Joe Biden is, is exhibit A is why you've got to control the, the, the kids because, uh, you know, he's obviously, um, Hunter Biden is obviously profiteered to an extraordinary extent um, uh, while Biden was both VP and now we don't know as president because it's become such a mess. But we, it, it's very important that we realize that this is a power game, that these folks are in a position to make money. And part of my rationale for saying we need to run this place from the district is it'd be a whole lot harder for the lobbyists to get in there and buy these politicians if they had to go looking all over the country for them? I mean, why make it easy and put them all in one place so these guys can go door to door in the in the capital and places <laughs> like that? And I speak from a little bit of experience. I've actually gotten uh, tickets to events that were intended for a politician. And uh, they get so many tickets to things that are sponsored by lobbyists that they can't go to all of them. So I've actually been out to the out for the evening with some lobbyists where they uh, they had a, a, a show with. Uh, I remember a show around the year 2000 with uh, Jerry Jeff Walker, who's a, a, a great. I love Jerry you know, Jeff. No, a lot of fun. We had a table right in front of the stage and uh, he put on a heck of a show. And uh, this is the greater Washington, D.C. area. And um, it's like, yeah, who wouldn't want to be uh, wined and dined by uh, lobbyists? And so it is, I think, would reduce. I can't eliminate the lobbyists, but I think it would reduce their impact if they had to stay more in their districts. And certainly term limits would have a dramatic impact because right now they only have to cuddle up to a handful of people. And those people were in office for long periods of time. Pelosi, the congressman from Alaska, uh, uh, Joe Biden, uh, Chuck Grassley. A lot of these people have been in Washington extraordinary periods of time. And they can't possibly be serving America's interest and in their, in their district's interest at this point. You know, I heard something about Diane Feinstein because she's one of these people. I think she's in her 90s. Yeah. <laughs> but somebody said... It, uh, and I did not read the whole article. I read the headline in the first paragraph. But it would be a, the gist of the story was that uh, we tend to think of that as a bad thing. Somebody in their nineties hanging on to a position for that long. But they said she's a, a, actually the right person to represent uh, those people because the the state is aging and they're all part. So the people she's representing are part of her age group. I'm not sure I buy that at all. But that was the argument being made. But I want to talk about um, the stock idea because this is a, something I got to admit some naivety here. That but so if a part of the problem in holding them accountable is um, in Nancy Pelosi's position, it's her husband doing the deals. But we all know that you know when she gets, she's the one kind of. Uh, feeding the information about what 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 legislation might impact deals and all that stuff. We all know that common sense, but that's impossible to prove. And so we can't. I don't think in America, in a free market society, we can pass laws that say your husband, if you're serving in Congress or you're serving in the Senate, your husband or or wife can't make deals 
uh, and and then how do we actually trace that stuff? So that's part of it. So the first question I have is it transparent that can it completely be, be transparent that when a congressperson or a congressperson's spouse makes a deal that that is known to the public? Can we know about every deal that is made, every stock purchase? I think you know there is a current regulation. And I think there are two politicians, they're both Republicans, as far as I recall, who are accused of uh, playing games in the current legal restrictions. And I don't think either one of them has been resolved. Uh, and the answer is, is part of it is that I think it is possible to come up with a, a system to do that. And there are rules on conflicts of interest all over the place. In, in other businesses. And for instance, uh, members of, uh, and, and to mention somebody who's very much in the news today is uh, Elon Musk. Uh, remember he uh, recently purchased 9.2% of Twitter. And we'll see, got, that's, not, that's not a final deal yet, but we, that's the idea, yeah. <laughs> no, 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 he's already bought 9.2% of Twitter. Oh, 9.2, right, you're right. He I thought you said 99. The SEC disclosure rule because he got past 5%. And right. I haven't heard, that. that's kind of been skipped over in the story about him buying the whole company because... I, I am not an expert on SEC law. I do teach business law at the university, but I remember the 5% rule, and I guess his argument is going to be, and again, I have no inside information, is going to be that he acquired so much so fast that he passed the 5% rather quickly. Maybe he bought a big block from another investor. Something right. interesting is going to happen there. So, but... The point is, though, is that we do have a set of rules. And if somebody goes out and, and buys a few hundred shares of stock, which is what normal people can afford, let's be blunt, that's not going to be an issue. But if somebody does uh, a, a big deal that affects a, a particular situation, I think it needs to be on the front page of the newspaper somewhere, or at least on some websites. And today with such uh, you know instant news coverage, it'd get out. And the, you know, I'm thinking about in particular about the big real estate deal that uh, Pelosi was involved in where they knew that certain things were going to happen. And Hey, I, you know, I, I have done a little bit with real estate and it's a tough business and I, I haven't ever made 40 or 50% times my money. And, uh, but I'd sure like to be on that string so that if I knew that certain people who had connections were doing things, hey, maybe the rest of us would like to play and maybe it would happen so that it, it maybe we all make two or 3% more on our money than we would otherwise, but uh, maybe somebody else wouldn't make you know, hundreds of percent more. So I, I think there's some, some room for some rules in there without turning it into another government bureaucracy just to monitor stock trades. No, I, 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 you make sense there. Uh, I, I think, uh, listen, a lot, I'm old enough to remember something called Whitewater, the people pooed, oh, yeah. which was basically that on a state level. Uh, it wasn't on a federal level, but it was exactly that. It was a land deal where huge profits were made by people with influence on it. The thing where people talk about it being unfair and this is this is where I again I'm naive about this, but in the horse racing world, if you know somebody who 
seem to have an inside uh, tips or system or uh, know who's going to win the race. You know who the winners are. You just get behind them and, and see who they bet and follow their bet. Now, people are saying it's unfair if uh, somebody like Nancy Pelosi uh, is making all this money off it. But if it's transparent and we know that she just made this deal, what's to stop me from making that same deal other than I don't have the, the capital to invest? <laughs> I, I totally, totally agree with you. And again, if they're in Washington shorter periods of time and they are out of office uh, most of the time, I think you're going to find that it's going to be a self-correcting problem that uh, people are not going to want to play with somebody who's only in Congress or, you know, for four or five terms or in the Senate for two terms. You know, my thought, and I actually think I proposed this in the first book and I came back in the second book, is uh, one term for president. I'm suggesting five years, six max, uh, two for Senate and five for the U.S. Congress. And that would mean if somebody did the full term in Congress, full term in Senate and full term president, they could still be in Washington for a long time, yeah, yeah. but it would still put a cap on, you know, a lot of the people. Um, and one of the things you mentioned earlier, I wanted to come back to was the way the political game is played. And I got a rude introduction. Um, I uh, was not politically involved most of my uh, younger life. Um, and then, uh, at, at some point, I started uh, to be going to political meetings and uh, meeting people and stuff like that. And I, I ran for state rep in 1992. And I had no opposition in the primary. So I actually was the in the general election in 1992, November 92. And it was a tremendous learning experience. And I'd love for everybody who's listening tonight to run for office, do something, <laughs> and find out what it's like. And, and I want to tell you just one story about it is I went to the ABC, that's Associated Building Contractors. And you would think that a, a hard-nosed conservative guy like me and, uh, would be a darling of ABC. And I went and they had you interview and uh, their PAC committee, because, of course, they're not allowed to donate the money directly. But, of course, they have a PAC and political action committee. So the political action committee folks uh, uh, interviewed me and they said uh, uh, a few days later, they called me up and they said, Shine, we like you. you you've got good ideas, but uh, we don't think you're going to get elected. So we're going to give the money to your opponent. Wow who was a far, far left Democrat. I mean, it was a huge margin between the two of us. And it, it was kind of that kind of slap in the face where it says, I just faced the reality of the lobbyist system, which is there, it's like going to the Kentucky Derby. And of course, the a 80 to one uh, uh, long shot won uh, last weekend. But it's hilarious because these guys are playing the favorites and they don't really care what the principles that person stands for. They care about whether the person gets elected. And that's something I think a lot of people don't realize. They talk about the defense contractors and, you know, are these people really in somebody's back pocket or the other? The, the bottom line is it's not as much about whether they're Democrat or Republican. It's whether they get elected to the next election cycle. And uh, so that was that was quite an education for me. And uh, I uh, 
stayed active and visible in politics. And then I had uh, my final run was uh, four years later, I ran in the primary, the Republican primary for state Senate. Uh, we were told that my uh, likely opponent in the general election might be having some problems, hint, hint, and that uh, I was recruited to run. I was not out looking to run. Somebody recruited me to run. And then I lost in the primary to a Democrat who registered and ran in the Republican primary because there was no barricade. You could just run. And, um, and, and he edged me out in the primary and then he promptly disappeared so that the Democrat in the general election had no opponent because the guy that won the primary didn't. After that happened to me, first of all, my campaign manager, who was a personal friend and a great guy, uh, he didn't commit suicide, but I think he actually contemplated it for a couple of days. He was so distraught about the whole experience and, and withdrew from politics completely. And today's a hermit, sadly, some years later. And for me, it was, you know what? This is such a rigged system that uh, I, I don't need to do this again. And, and I've pretty much uh, stayed out of things. Uh, my, my feeling is maybe if I was appointed to a government position, I, I would position if I was appointed, maybe I'd run as an incumbent, but to, to run from scratch again, not on my list. And that follows on with what you said a few minutes ago is that the people that do get elected, the people that do run, not all of them are bad people, but it, it seems to be a polluting system in Washington. So you've got people who are bad to the bone as a famous rock song says, but that's not the majority. I think a lot of them are good human beings. I, um, you know, I'm a Kantian. I have a belief that everybody's goodness comes from inside them. But when you get to Washington, you start figuring out how this game is played. And I just touched on a couple issues and I, I think it pollutes even the best of them. And, uh, I had a personal friend who, who I supported for Congress. He got elected and he was uh, elected for, uh, he was in office for 18 years. Uh, he was ambushed in a um, <clears throat> primary. He, he, he lost the primary, lost the general election. But it was interesting because I was about to go to him because, you know, I put my money where my mouth is. I was about to go to him and say, uh, I'm not gonna mention his name, hey, I really like you to not run again. You want to come home. And uh, the electorate sent him home. And the electorate, unfortunately, has gotten a whack job of all whack jobs. And, uh, uh, and I saw this happen. I lived in Virginia before I moved all the way from, I moved from Washington to Central Virginia, and then back to Houston. When I was in Central Virginia, uh, I saw uh, the... Uh, you know, some of the favorites uh, lose races in the in the primary to uh, candidates who just got out there and hustled a little harder and uh, kind of ambushed uh, people that you expected to get elected. So it does happen. But unfortunately, it does seem a lot of times when that happens that it's a more radical candidate as opposed to a, a person who's more committed to serving the people.
Yeah, I have to tell you, listening to you talk, you're not making me more of an optimist about, about this stuff. Uh, you're increasing my pessimism. Now, uh, I agree with what you said there about um, they don't care what your principles are. They care if you're electable. So the money, the, the dirty money that is in the, the corporations or uh, individuals of great power and wealth who are buying politicians they you know, and paying for their campaign through political uh, action committees, they're, they don't care what your principles are. They care about your electability. And you can get elected. Well, once you get there we'll, and we control you, it doesn't matter wh- where your um, principles or values lie. Eventually, we own you anyway. You're going to be a puppet of, of us. That sounds like what you said, right? But that's my uh, feeling on it, any, whether that's what you said or not. But th- that case, how do you, again, I come back to how can you possibly have any degree of optimism in that scenario? Well, I remember the original political system, and I went to college in Philadelphia, and since I left Philly right after college, I did not get involved in politics directly, but I was incidentally involved in politics. I, I knew how things were going. I knew the... Uh, uh, local uh, precinct chair in the uh, uh, low-income area where I lived uh, my last two years of college. And it, it was very interesting. Uh, I still remember the guy's name. He, he was, uh, Ed Hannity was his name. He's a nice Irish-American guy. And he was the Democratic precinct chair for the area where my rundown old apartment was. And he was very connected to the community, he wasn't running for office. The, the precinct chair was almost a, a default position. You know, who's willing to sweep the floors and set up a table in their house to have people come over and hang out. And he was very community connected. And that was at a time, I think, when the Democrats and Republicans were a lot closer together. And I think both parties were, were very much committed to America first. And, and I think we can get back to that. And, and I'll mention something that may not seem like, a, like a, a sequence or a connection, but the recent parental involvement in politics uh, uh, as school boards in Loudoun County, Virginia, where 500 uh, parents show up for a school board meeting and said, you will not impose CRT on our children and enough is enough. I think that's the tip of the iceberg heading in the other direction. The election of uh, the the new governor of Virginia also, I think, is a sign of the times. And remember, in New Jersey, the uh, opponent there did not win, but he had people pretty scared for a while. And so I think that there are certainly some bright spots in what I agree with you is otherwise a dismal situation. And it's hard for me to be optimistic this week when we see uh, runaway inflation. And it doesn't seem that the people in Washington really have a handle on things. And, uh, uh, you know, a couple points about that. One is I was watching the the some live interviews earlier today on the, the, the Fed meeting. And these guys didn't, the, the couple people in the interview just didn't come out and say, hey man, this is a mega problem. 
and they blamed it on the supply chain instead of saying, well, we printed a couple trillion dollars of money that we shouldn't have printed. Not a single Fed representative ever said the cause of this is too much money chasing too few goods. They said, oh, it's the supply chain and this, that, and the other thing. And some of the, the remedies that they're talking about are clearly adverse to uh, America's interest. To give you an idea, one of the suggestions is, is that Trump to protect American industry. And again, I'm, I'm not a Trumpite. I, I want to be clear about that. Um, I think he did, uh, he did a lot of good things when he was in Washington, but uh, not a good guy, to be blunt. But it was interesting because he put those tariffs, they're, they're talking about 300 tariffs is my recollection that he put on China. Those protect American industry. Those encourage American industries to make more stuff at home, which is important to our national security. Z and China want to take over the United States. They don't want to just be the largest economy. It's not just a fair fight. It's they're they're on, you know, they're basically waging an economic war. To remove those tariffs would give China a huge advantage that they do not have today. So the Fed, the, the Fed representatives sitting there saying, oh, well, we can take those tariffs off and that'll reduce costs for Americans. But at what cost to America as a country? Um, I mean, I wanna see us uh, mining uh, rare minerals here. I wanna see us controlling rare minerals in other parts of the world and it's who's got the big plan here really fixing things. And then, of course, the, the other part of it is the discussion about uh, runaway energy costs. And uh, I'm sorry, I'm sitting here in Houston, Texas. And you know what we say here? Drill, baby, drill. <laughs> and, uh, and, and whether you agree with uh, that or not, and I had a debate uh, recently on LinkedIn with somebody went after me for something I said, relatively similar to drill, baby, drill. And I said, look, I am totally in favor of green energy and having a great future. I said, I drive a fuel efficient car. I live near my work. I'm, I'm not spending an hour a day each way commuting and wasting gasoline and polluting the air. And um, I'm uh, working, I'm rehabbing an old house and we're gonna convert it to solar energy because I think it makes sense. Uh, my current house, I put every insulating material in it I possibly could, converted the hot water heaters to uh, tankless uh, and so on and so forth. I think all of us should do what we can, but the current war in the United States on fossil fuels is untimely and it is misplaced and, and it's a great example of why we need to have smarter, sharper people in Washington, because we cannot feed everybody. Let's be blunt. We can run out of food. Uh, we cannot take care of ourselves if we do not continue to use fossil fuels while we work like Dave Shine is to, to put a solar system in his house. And I mean, and it's uh, fortunately, it's not as expensive as it was 20 years ago, but it's still a, a real cost. You're making an investment in the future. But I think that uh, from a global standpoint that we need to be very practical. And as someone you know points out, a lot of the conservatives point out is 
it is dirtier to bring fossil fuels in from overseas. We didn't stop using fossil fuels. We just stopped using ours to the extent that we could. And it takes enormous amounts of energy to ship petroleum from uh, the Middle East into Houston, Texas and New Jersey and Long Beach, uh, California to have it refined versus pipelining it in to those refineries inside the United States. And I think we do a good job um, in terms of environmental controls here in the United States. Are we perfect? No, but we're a heck of a lot better than most of the rest of the world. Um, yeah, here's my take on this. And I agree with you that we are definitely not ready to go completely green. And we need to rely on fossil fuel uh, to do a lot of the heavy lifting while we work on a greener, uh, more uh, energy independent uh, and, and renewable energy future. I think what we're seeing with current gas prices and energy fuel oil prices uh, is not driven by, and I'm not an economic, economist, I don't have a degree in this stuff, but it doesn't feel to me like it makes any sense that it's dri driven by traditional laws of supply and demand. In other words, uh, because I know the profits for ExxonMobil uh, for quarter one uh, and, and Chevron and Shell, were four times what they were last year in the same quarter. But I don't think demand is higher, even though supply might be a little bit less. I don't think demand is that much higher because we're doing a lot of this. A lot of people are working from home. A lot of people are driving electrical, uh, electric vehicles. A lot of people are using solar energy. Uh, so demand is not it's not, you know, through the roof in order to push prices ex insanely high as they are right now. I think a lot of it is driven by corporate greed rather than traditional economic forces of supply and demand. Do you agree with any of that and on any level? Well, I, you know, I have a, a, a jaded viewpoint. Uh, when I was in law school, I worked for Gulf Oil. When I was, I got out of law school, I worked uh, for Shell Oil for three years. I worked <laughs> for three states in three years. So that was in the old Shell system. And then I worked for a midsize oil company, Tenneco Oil Company, that was part of the Tenneco conglomerate. So my first uh, 10, 12 years of uh, law school and after law school, I was uh, working for big oil. I can tell you that the, the margins are about 2%. And I actually did a piece uh, on one of my own podcasts where we went after Washington and said, you know, it's a 2% deal versus uh, Apple that, that makes like a 25% margin. So if you're going to go after people for, for price gouging, <laughs> there's a lot of people ahead of us, uh, pharmaceuticals and, and computers that make a whole lot margin, more margin. But the other thing is people talk about the fact that there are certain sunk cost credits, that the investment in getting the oil creates certain uh, tax benefits. And they often talk about taking those benefits away, but virtually every business in America can, can deduct the cost of, of investment in making more money. So I don't think it's uh, that, that good a suggestion um, the other thing that people don't realize is that the major oil companies have divested retail. So there's two prices out there. The oil companies definitely control the wholesale price of oil. 
the the price that we see tracked on you know yahoo finance and stuff like that where they say you know wti west texas intermediate is the acronym for that and uh is uh, 99 a barrel i happened to catch that late this afternoon and uh, the uh uh, the sweet crude, I think, is $103 a barrel today. So, you know, we here in Houston, we pay attention to actually the barrel cost. And if you divide that by 55 gallons, which is the content of a barrel of oil, and then they have to refine it and cook it and all that, it, it comes out, you know, it, it, it's not a huge margin built in there at wholesale. That's what I'm saying. It, like I said, the estimate is 2 to 3%. But the other part of it is, that you see wild variations in the retail price of gasoline. Like uh, I go to a particular gas station because I like to not get bad gas. So I go to a gas station that I know has good gasoline and it, I drive out of my way to do that. But again, I don't drive very much. So I only fill up once, a, once a, a week and that covers me for a whole week and I'm pretty fortunate. But uh, the, I'm seeing a price spread in Houston of 80 cents a gallon for for regular. And that says to me that there's people at the retail level. The, what happened is, is that the retail gasoline stations, when I was in-house to Tentacle Oil Company, uh, we had a bunch of stations. I was the labor counsel for those retail gasoline stations. And it was quite a circus, but they were actually our employees. What happened after I left Big Oil is they sold off all of those gas stations. And it was because of something that people may not put together. And that is ERISA, the Employee Retirement Income Security Act, is if people are really your employees, they have to get the same benefits. The oil companies have tremendous benefit programs for their people, almost as good as Washington. <laughs> and so they don't want to give them to minimum wage workers out in the gas stations. So Shell Oil may own that gas station, but it's leased to an independent operator or a group of operators like Circle K or 7-Eleven. And then they actually operate the stations and set the prices and they charge what they can. I'm in an, an inner city area. Gasoline prices are very high other than where I go to, uh, to a, a membership uh, gas station that requires me to have an annual membership. But yeah, you, you see a lot of variance here uh, where I am in Long Island, New York. There is a, if you go to the Hamptons right now, which is <laughs> it's coming towards the uh, season for the Hamptons, there is a, a Hess station that is selling regular gas at $6.25 a gallon, $6.25 a gallon, where there's a Hess station not too far from me uh, because I'm, I'm on the edge of the Hamptons where it's $4.01 and, and a gallon. Right. So that's, that's a huge variance of same, same company, uh, but they know that who can pay for it and who can't pay for it. Which is well, kind of... it's the same brand name on the gasoline station, but it isn't necessarily the same ownership since the retail and the refining are segregated or are, are separated because what I said about ERISA and benefits uh, e equalization. So you may find if you look at the, over the door, sometimes there's a plate that says, this is operated by, you know, Joe's uh, service station or something. Right, yeah, yeah. The other one will probably say we're operated by Circle K or 7-Eleven. So, so do look for that because that's that tells you who's profiteering and 
and who isn't. But also, if you think about it, the locations, if you're right in the heart of the Hamptons, that's some of the most expensive real estate in America, coastal right. real estate in a high-end area. So they're going to have a higher overhead. And, and a lot of our, you know, not to get on another soapbox, but a lot of Americans have no real understanding of finance and economics. And I think if they did, they might do a better job of supervising their members of Congress and the Senate when they feed, when they get fed all of this nonsense, people would stand up and say, hey, hey, that's just nonsense. And we're not going to use any bad words today. But yeah. <laughs> just this, this, this you, you didn't sell us that story. And that's why I say when you, you get uh, uh, Joe Biden standing up and saying that if Putin caused inflation and you get a Fed guy saying, it's the supply chain and not printing $2 trillion extra money. We need members of the public to understand what nonsense both of those statements are. I think the, the public is too lazy to, to that. That's the, and this is why they, we love cable news uh, to kind of just uh, tell us what to think. You know, I work all day. I, I, I create a living for myself. Come home. The last thing I want to do is become educated that night. I just want to, melt in front of the TV, put on a ball game, maybe get the quick version of the news. And, and I think a, a lot of it, part of it is laziness. We are at a time, but I did want to kind of, uh, we didn't even talk really about the decline of America, which is a book about the presidents up until yeah. uh, the Obama administration. Uh, that book is out as well as the a Bad Deal for America. Are you working on a follow-up about the courts? Uh, well, actually, the, I've got a couple of things working. I'm pr putting together a musical uh, review called Novel T, and it is a collection of the 60s, 70s, and 80s were the peak period for novelty songs on the radio. And so I'm working on that. And um, I'm, I, like many academics working on articles all of the time, I'm, I'm concentrating on ESG as a concept. Uh, is uh, one of the ways people are rating stocks today and whether businesses are ethical or not. But um, actually, what the plan is for Decline of America is uh, my publishing contract has expired. So we're going to take the book apart. We're going to reformat it. We're going to add chapters on Trump and Biden. And, and hopefully we'll have that ready to go. I don't think I'm going to make 2023, but maybe by early 2024, we're going to have a a revised, uh, 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 you know, approach to the presidency. And, uh, yeah, we might have to take on the Supreme Court in there as well. Yeah, I, I, you know, you, you did the first two branches of the government, uh, and I didn't even think of that when, when, before we started today, that you, you, it was kind of a makes sense to do, take on the legislature after the presidency. But then there is another, a whole other, especially now is heightened interest in our court system because of everything that's going on right now. So I think that would be interesting. Anyway, the link is in the description and the link to Amazon where you can buy Bad Deal for America and uh, Bad Deal for America. If you're on that page on, on Amazon, it also links to uh, the decline of America. So you can basically that one link will take you to both places. That link is in the description. I encourage people to check it out if you're so inclined. It's been a really uh an eye-opening conversation but one one that i think we're just kind of scratching the surface on but i, w I wish we had more time but um there's so much that I, I wanted to talk about with this stuff but part of the problem before i let you go is this um 
this concept that I have is all this change that you're talking about that needs to happen is in the hands of the people who who benefit from not making it happen. In other words, term limits uh, has to be voted on by a legislature who who's not interested in li- limiting their own terms. This is part of the the catch twenty two that we're dealing with. Uh, any um, solutions or proposed solutions for that situation in the book this idea of the people who whom we need to be responsible for making the change have no interest in making that change well there's two approaches one is is if people get more involved in the political process and you know many people when they're running for office suddenly appear in their districts uh you know for a few days they slum it with their actual constituents and is to say to them if we vote for you, will you agree to voluntarily limit your term? That's number one. Number two is if we cannot get it through the legislature is a convention of states. And I'm not an expert on that. I, I, I'm a pretty good expert, but I'm not expert on everything. But I am told that you could put together a convention of states that would just consider term limits. Uh, people are afraid of convention of states that they might turn into a radical a revision of the U.S. Constitution, and I'm told that doesn't have to happen. And uh, almost every state now has an organization that's linked together with others called, you know, Convention of States. And supposedly they've got some traction going. The worse the government does, the more traction there is for a Convention of States. And term limits, I think, would be a huge first step. So let's see what happens. But that's that's we put that in the, at the end of the book. All right, cool stuff. Thanks for for being here. I wish you a lot of success and anything we can do to help uh, create interest in the book, uh, uh, we will be happy to help and uh, maybe come back sometime, And especially if you're coming out with some new projects, come back and we'll talk about them when they're ready. (laughs) That sounds like a winner. And thank you so much for your time today. It's it's been a great fun uh, being here tonight. Same here. Thank you for being here. Bye for now. Be well. Uh, David D. Shine, folks. Love to hear your opinions on some of this stuff. Listen, folks, I know politics can bring out the worst in people. The um, the chat room sometimes gets out of hand with, and we weren't. There wasn't a whole lot of partisanship in here, but I understand people have different opinions. Uh, nasty comments in in the chat section are going to be uh, banned. I'm sorry, I can't. Um, I'm very much about letting people express their opinions and whether you agree with them or disagree with them, try to be respectful. I know it's a really difficult time in in America right now uh, to encourage the idea of civil conversation and and debate and keeping an open mind about ideas. But I saw some of the comments in there and they were just, I didn't have time to go blocking people tonight, but those people will be, I'm going to review them and we're going to, we're going to end up uh, blocking some people. I, I appreciate everything you do uh, being part of the program, but if you can't keep it civil, we can't, we can't allow the comments to um, go on. Anyway, I just am very curious about real opinions on this stuff. And, and um, you know, the, again, I, I appreciate his guarded optimism. I'll remain a pe- pessimist uh, just because I'm gonna, and I'm going to just quickly, uh, because we are over time. Lee Zeldin, who was my congressman from my district, I asked him 
point blank, when he was at a supermarket, a local supermarket before he was elected, if you are elected, can you disagree? Do you have the authority or, or, or backbone to disagree with your party if, if on principle, you think uh, it's a bad idea? And we discussed some specifics. And he, he looked me in the eye and assured me that he would be independent and not necessarily toe the party line and take every issue on face value. And as soon as he got elected, he told the party line. And it's, it's the same thing on the other side, you know, uh, and I think Mr. Smith goes to Washington should be <laughs> required viewing for everybody. Anyway, so I'm a pessimist on the whole thing. I'd love to hear your comments and, and suggestions. Please uh, write to me, info at mindogtv.com. I'll be with you in the morning for Coffee with the Dog. Uh, Big T uh, from TNT TV will be my guest in the morning for a uh, interesting program, comedy and um, cooking edibles. <laughs> Anyway, I hope uh, hope to see you then. Till then, I'm Matt Nabble with my Dog TV podcast. Thanks for having uh, me with you tonight, and uh, have a great night. Bye for now.
to me, listen to me now. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me now. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me now. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me now.